Would like to welcome you. Uh, I am Chris. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, want to just encourage you, if you are new with us, uh, in the seat back pocket in front of you, there is a Connect card. would encourage you to fill that out. Let us know of your attendance here this morning. If you have any prayer needs, requests for us to be aware of this week, uh, you can write those there on that card and deposit that uh, back in the, the offering box there in the uh, foyer in the back, and uh, we'll make sure that we take note of those things and be in prayer for you over the course of this week and uh, reach out to you uh, as needed. All right. A couple other things I'd like to bring your attention to. If you have one, we print out our announcements for you. They're back there on the Welcome Center. This is uh, the FBC Weekly. On the back, there are a couple of announcements, and on the front, there is the prayer sheet. Pastor Mark already mentioned a couple of the things that we have on here to highlight for prayer needs, the postmas and uh, the transport mission that they're in process of, of doing with the refugees from Ukraine, and additionally, uh, praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, as well as just all of the Ukrainian people uh, through this time. It'd be uh, grateful uh, for any prayers that we can render on their behalf. So encourage uh, us this week to be engaged in prayer with them. Uh, additionally, this last week I skipped church, and I beg your forgiveness. But I did take 11 to winter camp last week, and we had a wonderful time. God was uh, challenging us uh, through the speaker that was there. And I'd encourage you, if you see a teenager that went to winter camp, uh, corner them and ask them about their time. Ask them what they learned, how God challenged them. They will have an answer. And if they don't, just stand there and wait. All right? They will have an answer, right? Because God did work. He did challenge them. And sometimes we just need some encouragement to, to reiterate some of those things. But it was a, a good time of meeting with the Lord and getting to know each other and challenge each other a little bit more. Uh, we have a box in the back, uh, a cardboard box. That is for a Bible drive. Uh, we're collecting Bibles to uh, take to a, a mission that accepts those and distributes those uh, to those in need. And so uh, if you're like me, you may have a, a number of Bibles on my shelf. I was counting how many Bibles I have that just take up shelf space. Right and, and, and what good is that? Not very. So if we could uh, take those, I'm going to put some of my uh, extra Bibles in there. If you have extra Bibles laying around that uh, are just uh, collecting dust or not being used because you have yours in your lap, I'm sure, right? This is a bobblehead answer, right? All right, then I would encourage you to, to bring those and put those in the box as well. Uh, next week, the 20th of March, we're going to have a baptism service uh, here at the church. I invite you to come and be a part of that. Uh, and just uh, celebrate the time uh, as uh, we have an individual that wants to publicly profess uh, their salvation and, and seek your uh, help and assistance in keeping him accountable in his walk. And so we're grateful for, uh, for this baptism, so I'd encourage you to come back for that next Sunday. Uh, other than that, the last thing I have as far as the teens are concerned, we have a tournament challenge on Saturday. I encourage you to invite your friends to come out. This is a time where, because it's kind of that March madness, we kind of have our own set of tournaments and activities, and we present the gospel uh, to the students while they're eating some food. So uh, I'd encourage you, parents, if you have teenagers, send them on out on the 19th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. We're going to have a lot of activities and some food, and like I said, we're going to present the gospel, so invite friends as well. It should be a good time. Other than that, I would invite you to please stand with me as I read one more announcement. On Wednesday the 16th, this Wednesday, it is Nerd Night, all right? So if for, you're coming to Awana, you're supposed to put on uh, your best glasses with tape on the middle, wear your suspenders, and untuck your shirt. It is Nerd Night, so come be a part of Awana. Youth group, we don't have Nerd Night. That's every night, all right? So just come on and be a part of youth group on Wednesday night, all right? So uh, Pastor Mark's going to lead us in our call to worship now. All right, our call to worship comes from Psalm chapter 95, verses 1 through 7. It says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Sing together, all creatures of our God and King.
Father, we thank you today for another day here in your world. We thank you for the creation that you have left here for us to be stewards of. We thank you for the opportunities that you present to us here in Carroll, Michigan, in the United States of America. We thank you for everybody who is here today in obedience to you to come and to assemble together and to worship and to give and to encourage one another. I ask that you would draw us close to you and to each other that you would cause us to look around and see what manner we can use the skills and abilities you have given to us to further the good news of the gospel, to spread the gospel, and to further the good work that you have called us to do, to love each other, to meet each other's real physical needs, to show compassion and grace, and to stand up for your righteousness at the same time. Lord, we thank you for 
the leadership team of this church, the pastors and the leaders of all the ministries, the people who have been willing to serve as elected leaders to the deacon board and to the trustees and everyone who gives of their time to serve, to try to be faithful to their calling in their lives and the, using the abilities that you have given them to lead this local body of believers. We pray specifically this morning for Lee and Andrew in Romania and all of the other people who are working with them to be your hands and feet to the people whose lives have literally been turned upside down. We thank, thank you and are grateful for the opportunity to play a small part to assist in that ministry. We pray for protection and safety for Andrew and the other drivers as they're driving back and forth. We pray for health and strength for Leah and the other women and the children that are helping them as they try to minister to and meet needs and feed people and keep people warm through the winter months who just not so long ago were taking care of themselves just fine. Lord, it is a difficult time. There is war and rumors of war. There is pain and suffering every day. But you are faithful and you have called us to be here and not there. And I pray that you would make yourself known to us, that you would help us, our hearts, to be sensitive to your leading, to show grace and compassion to those who are serving in so many different capacities around the country and around the world. We thank you for everything you give to us, and above all, we thank you for the cross. In the name of our precious Savior, Jesus, amen. i 
chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. It says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Chris. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to that very passage in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 848 in the black pew Bible in front of you. 848. Well, it is uh, coming to the end of basketball season for the high school, but the professionals have uh, continued to continue playing. And nearly every, every year, it seems, when uh, the NBA season comes around, uh, there is a debate uh, among fans and uh, talking heads about who is the, the greatest basketball player of all time, right? And the answer is... Michael Jordan, all right. That actually, I agree with that answer. Uh, Not everyone agrees with that answer, of course. I think some of it uh, matters when you grow up, right? Uh, Some of you that uh, may may have uh, watched basketball before Michael Jordan, maybe there's some people that you think were were better. Some of you who grew up, some of you who grew up without without Michael Jordan, maybe you never saw him, so you don't don't think that he was as as great as he was. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, th- that is a, a question, and th- that's not the only sport to ask the questions, right? They all ask those questions. Uh, golf asks that's que- go- golf asks the question about Tiger or film or um, um, whoever the other people are. Um, <laughs> case in point, um, fo- football asks that question about quarterbacks or running backs or wide receivers. Baseball fans ask that question about pitchers or hitters with or without steroids, you know, things like that, right? So the greatest of all time, right? Those are the questions. Uh, these can be called mega questions. Who is the greatest of all times? But, but these questions aren't left to sports either, are they? Some of you want to argue about who, who's the greatest uh, vehicle manufacturer. Some of you want to great, argue about who has the, the best tractors. Some of you argue about who has the, the greatest sewing machines, right? What, whatever, right? On and on you go, right? We, we could ask this question about everything. Well, in our passage today, Jesus is confronted once again with the religious leaders. We've seen this in chapter 12. They keep coming, right? They keep coming to him, asking him these questions. And here he comes again, or here comes someone again, asking a question, and he gets a mega question. What is the greatest commandment of all? That's the question. You can look at it in verse 28 again. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which command is the most important of all. Now, this question was, was commonly, apparently commonly um, debated uh, among the, the Jewish leaders. It was the source of debates. What, what is it? So the question itself may not have been that, that shocking or that new. However, uh, posing it at Jesus seems to have uh, a, an intent, or at least possibly. Matthew, in his gospel, noted that the, that the lawyer uh, was tempting Jesus. Uh, but Mark does not frame it that way. Mark does not uh, express that, that this man is, is uh, testing Jesus, but, but only that, that he has heard uh, this dispute happening between, uh, among them in the them in verse 29, when it says, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing. That's the Sadducees, the story that we just looked at last week. He saw them disputing and he heard Jesus. And he heard Jesus' answer in that he answered well or that he answered beautifully or admirably. 
Right? So, so he's hearing this and he's saying, okay, this, this guy has, has an answer. This guy is dealing with these other religious leaders, so I'm going to ask him a question as well. So after, again, confrontations from the Pharisees, from the, the, the Herodians, from the Sadducees, now here Jesus is confronted and interacts with what is called here a scribe who is probably a Pharisee, but is a religious lawyer with expertise in the law. He was a theological scholar of the Old Testament, right? No, no slouch here. The Old Testament uh, is a, a historical accounting of the history of God's people, uh, primarily the history of Israel. It is also uh, filled with prophetic statements about what was to come from God's prophets, and in it, we also find commandments. In fact, there are said to be 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Most of us know 10, right? Uh, but there's more. There's more. 613. And it is said that 365 of those commands are negative. Do nots. And 248 of them are positive. So when Jesus gets the question, what is the greatest commandment of all, he's got a few to choose from, right? You might think, how, how would you even pin that down? 613 commands. Of course this is debatable, right? Of course this is a debated question. Now the question, though, we, we should understand was not so much about which particular command was the greatest command, but more to the point of what kind of commands were most important of all. Meaning, as a scholar, he was looking at it and saying, are the ritual commands more important than the ethical commands? Or are the ethical commands more important? And so in the Old Testament, we can see ritual commands, things like um, circumcision and things like keeping the Sabbath day as, as rituals, things that they were commanded to do. But we also see ethical commands that, that reflect on our morality on how we treat people and how we love people. So to this question, Jesus offers a, a masterful and even definitive answer. And he does it in two parts. Look at it in verses 29 and 30 to start. And Jesus answered, most important is, and then he quotes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now Jesus is quoting here, and what he is quoting comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And it is a section of Deuteronomy, a, a passage that's called the Shema. And the Shema, uh, that word comes from the very first word that Jesus quotes, the word here. The Hebrew word for hear or for to, to listen. It's hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. So, um, and then, then he goes on and he quotes the, the remainder of it. So, so this prayer, I mean, it was basically a prayer that Jews would pray twice a day, morning and night. It was said that the Shema was worn by the devout in a tiny leather box on their forehead and on their wrist while they prayed. If you think about why on their forehead, why on their wrist, well, their, their, their eyes or their mind and their hands. Uh, Jewish homes, godly Jewish homes hung the Shema on the door. Uh, th these two verses were, were a creed. They were a confession of Israel's faith. T to bring it a little more close to us, as Christians think about the Lord's Prayer, the Jews would think about the Shema, Okay. So some, people, some Christians over, over the years have, have repeated or prayed the Lord's Prayer. So too, Jews would pray this, this prayer. It was a prayer that confessed that the Lord, that is the word Yahweh, is God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. So the Lord, their Lord, the Jewish Lord, that, that's who God is. Yahweh is God. And not only that, but God is one, or the Lord is one. He is only one. There, he, is, he is the only one. But he is one. Mono. Monotheism. There's not multiple gods here. They're saying that, that God is one. He is unique and he is exclusive. And therefore he is to be loved. 
And why is he to be loved? Because he is Yahweh. He is the covenant-keeping God. This God deserves your love because of the covenant that he has given to his people. That's what this prayer is saying. He is the object of love. So the prayer starts with, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is your God. And then what about it? You love him. See, this call to hear, this prayer to, to hear was not just about listening, but to about obeying. So sometimes we hear things and we don't do them. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, the, the, the word hear, listen, has the connotation of action as well, of doing what you heard. It is not just to hear and it goes in one ear and out the other. Right, parents? Right, amen? Right, so that's not what this is meaning. It's not meaning just literally hear it. It means hear and do. Hear, O Israel, what? Love the Lord your God. Let's look at verse 30 again. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now there's a few words for the word love in the original language. And two of the words in the Bible that are used are the word agape and phileo, which are the Greek words. I don't know very many Greek words, but that makes me sound smart, right? So agape and phileo. And phileo is where we get our word Philadelphia. That's the word for brotherly love, right? So how, how you love your brothers and sisters, how you love your friends, that's fine. Agape is another word in the Bible, and that word has the idea of unconditional and self-sacrificial love. So Jesus is saying to love the Lord your God, to, to be willing to sacrifice, to have unconditional love for God. This is a love that's not primarily from feeling, but from the will. It's a choice. Now, love is a noun, but it is also a verb. And here it's functioning as a verb. It's functioning as action. Do. Lo love does something. Love is action. Love actually is faithful obedience, we could say. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 actually tells us more about that. Deuteronomy 6 actually teaches that to love God means that we are to obey him. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 6. That we are to teach our children about him. Verse 7. That we are to remember him. Not to forget him. Verses 7 and 12. And not to follow other gods. So when we say to love God, what does that even mean? Well, Deuteronomy tries to help us with that. Now, it's one thing for us to say that we love God. There's a lot of people who would say, I love God. But to actually love him is something else, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we say one thing, but, but we live very differently. Jesus doesn't just say love God. He tells us how we are to love God. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with and the word with there is talking about source. Where, where is this love coming from? How are you doing this? Out of what are you loving God? And then he lists four things. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And here Jesus is repeating the word all four times. We, we ought to note whenever there's repetition in the Bible that's, that something is happening, Right? Why, why, why couldn't he have just said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? But the repetition is telling us something. It's telling us something about the comprehensive nature of what this is. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. All your heart is, is your, your heart here is your control center. It's the center of your being. It's your emotions. Your soul is your conscious life. Your, your mind is your intelligence, your, your thinking, your capacity for thought. All your strength, your, your bodily powers, your, your ability, your, your will. That's what those things mean. But when, when Jesus is doing this, he, he's not just breaking down the personality just to break down the personality. He, what he's actually saying is that you are to love God with your whole being. All that you are. This is what it means to love God. All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. And all your strength. We are to love God with all that we are. So, if that's true, and it is, that's what Jesus is saying, what would it mean for you to love God with your whole being. All your heart. 
Is your heart divided? All your soul, your conscious life, your, your, your reason, all your mind, your thoughts and your intelligence, all your strength, your, your capacity. You see, we prioritize what we love, right? We make time for what we love. The things that we love in our life, we will make time for. We will make sacrifices for. We will give up things. We will spend money. We will, we will take away from other parts of our life in order to do or care for the things that we love. Right? Now, it might not be the right things, but the truth is that we do that. Every one of us does that. And every one of us has something that we love. And what Jesus is saying here is the greatest command of all is that you love God with everything that you have. That your whole being is dedicated to, committed to, the love of God. So if you were to love God with your whole being, what would be the evidence in your life? It wouldn't just be a profession that I love God with all my heart, all my, my, my soul, all my mind, all my strength. That, that wouldn't be it, right? That wouldn't be the evidence. That'd be a confession. It wouldn't be the evidence. Right? The evidence is in what we do or what we don't do. Right? How would this be displayed? How would your day-to-day -day life be different? What in your life would change if your whole being was devoted to the love of God? And remember, love is a verb. It's action. It's choice. There's a lot of people who would say, well, of course I love God. But to that we say, okay, but How? How do you love God? In what ways are you loving God? If, if all I ever did to my wife is tell her that I love her and never showed her that I love her, there may be some questions about what kind of love that, that I, I think I'm, I'm, I have for her. Love is action. If love is faithful obedience, in what ways are you loving God? This would be worth your further consideration and contemplation. But Jesus' answer does not stop there. In verse 31, he offers a second part. Look at verse 31 with me. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the first command, love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. The first part came from Deuteronomy. This second part comes from the book of Leviticus. Not a book we uh, tend to read too much in. But in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, this comes right from that chapter. Right from that verse, chapter 19, verse 18. And here Jesus is, is using this term uh, neighbor in a much broader sense than the people who are living next to you. Right? Some of you might live in the country and say, well, I have no neighbors. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? Right? No, uh, clearly, just so we put the dots close together for the people in the back, right? It's clearly, it, it, is, it is more than just the person that is in proximity to you physically at a moment of where you are living, right? Uh, that's not what Jesus is meaning. And we know this because in Luke's gospel, Jesus has asked this question about the greatest command. He gives an answer, and the response is, who's my neighbor? And from there, Jesus gives a story, a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We won't spend time on that today, but that's in Luke chapter 10. And part of the point of what Jesus is doing there is to say that your neighbor is anyone with whom you come into contact with. And as he's talking to the Jewish people, he's saying even people who are not Jewish, particularly a Samaritan who was hated by the Jews, He's crossing a barrier. And he's saying, even those people are your neighbor. Even those people are the ones you are to love. But if loving your neighbor isn't enough, Jesus actually says, love your neighbor as yourself. So as you love yourself, love your neighbor. So you may say, well, I can love my neighbor. I'll just kind of you know, help him out a little bit. No, no, no. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Now, we live in a, in a culture where the, the, the terminology or the idea of self-love is, is, is something that people talk about. Like, I need to love myself more. 
And now, to be fair, like, there are people who are hard on themselves. If, by that, if, if that's what we mean by that, then, then, then yeah, we, we probably should give ourselves a little more grace, okay? But our greatest problem in the world is not that we love ourselves too little. It's that we love ourselves too much, right? In the, in the age of, of selfies and s- social media, it is, it is not that I need more glory in my life to glorify myself. We can do that on our own just fine. What is Jesus saying? When Jesus talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, he's not talking about this self-love idea. He's talking about the idea of, of, of an other-centered love. One writer says it this way, the more I rightly love myself, the more I will deny myself and love others. If you, if you bring together the things that Jesus tells us, you wouldn't come out with a selfish love for myself, right? You would come out with a denial of self in an outward focus of loving other people. So when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying to care about them like you care about yourself, to deny yourself in order to care about them. But Leviticus chapter 19 actually shows us even more about what this means. And and the theologian D.A. Carson points to the context of this chapter and points out a few of the things that in that chapter tell us what love of neighbor even looks like. They say, well, I, I I don't know what it means to love my neighbor necessarily. Well, Leviticus chapter 19 actually tells us. And it says this in verse 10, to, to care for the poor. In verse 11, it says not to steal. It says not to lie. In verse 14, it says to be fair in business dealings. And also in verse 14, is to care for the deaf and the blind. In verse 15, to deal justly with all. Verse 16, to avoid slander and not to jeopardize the life of your neighbor. In verse 17, not to harbor hatred against your brother. In verse 17, also to rebuke your neighbor, that's loving, when necessary for his and your good. In verse 18, not to take revenge or bear a grudge against others. So then, what would it mean for you to love your neighbor as yourself this week? What would that look like? What would it look like in your place of employment? What would it look like in your community? What would it look like in our church? What would it look like in your home? What about the difficult coworker? Or the boss who you don't get along with? Or the family member that seems to just cause drama? or literally the friend, or literally the neighbor next door who needs help? What does it look like to love your neighbor? What about the strained relationships in your life? Are you harboring hatred in Leviticus chapter 19? Are you holding a grudge? This is not what it means to love your neighbor. So we ask, how can we love our neighbors this week in obedience to this great command? Well, Jesus ends his answer in verse 31 Look at the rest of verse 31 there. It says, there is no greater command than these. No command greater than these. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew records this. On these two commands depend the law and the prophets. So Jesus is summarizing all of the laws, really, into these two things. Jesus, according to Warren Wearsby, writes this. Jesus made love the most important thing because love fulfilled the law. Romans chapter 13. What Jesus is doing here is he's bringing two different scriptures together, right? And he's, he's, he's putting them together, uh, this idea of love for God and love for other, others. And by doing that, it is a summarization. It's also a summarization of the Ten Commandments. In the first four commandments, you have uh, no other gods before me, graven images, Don't take the Lord's name in vain and keep the Sabbath day holy. All of those are directed towards God, our relationship with God. So in this way, love love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, all your mind, all your strength is the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. Similarly, the the last six commands of the of the Ten Commandments are these: honor your father and your mother. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not bear 
uh, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. And in that way, Jesus saying, love your neighbor, is the fulfillment of the last six. So Jesus is masterfully giving this definitive answer of what is the greatest. you got 613 commands. you got these rituals and these, these ethical commands. Which is the greatest? Again, it seems like maybe there's no good answer here. And Jesus mystifies them all by pulling these two ideas together and summarizing the very Ten Commandments. Jesus was demonstrating that love for God and love for man cannot be divided. They're inseparable. And we see that in 1 John chapter 4. Listen to these words. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love, for he who does not love his brother, whom he can whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Therefore, to love your neighbor as yourself is to love the Lord your God. They're dependent on each other. Well, upon hearing Jesus, the scribe responds, in verses 32 and 33. And what we find here in Mark is unique to Mark. None of the other Gospels um, give this description of, of what the scribe says. So look, look at it in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, in the past, when we've seen one of the religious leaders refer to Jesus as teacher or master, it's, it's, it's sarcasm, it's, it's fake respect. But, but here, he is actually admitting something. You are right, teacher. He's, he's affirming that Jesus' answer is correct, that it is in line with, with what the, the, the scriptures teach. He's admitting that which no one else had been doing. He even added two references of his own to his answer. When he says, there is no other besides him, that's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. And when he says that love is, is more, much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, that's 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. See, this, this scribe is recognizing something about what Jesus is saying, that this actually is lining up. This, this isn't Jesus just blowing smoke. This is Jesus bringing together the Old Testament. It's Jesus showing how this all comes together. Clearly then the ethical commands, the, the commands about morality were in fact greater than the ritual commands. The issue was, and the issue is today and will always be a matter of the heart. A matter of what we love who do we love? What do we love? You see, the scribe here isn't arguing with Jesus. You know, a lot of times when Jesus was confronted with people, even when the Apostle Paul was confronted with people, they, they, they would fight back, right? They would rage him. They'd try to arrest him. They, they would try to stone him. They, they wanted to silence him. But that's not what we see here. We see agreement. And this is not something that we have seen in the Gospels. It, it would have taken a, a measure of, of fortitude and of guts to be a religious leader in that context, with that opposition, with that tension against Jesus of all the other religious leaders, for this guy to look at Jesus and say, you know what, you're right. That, that, is, that is the greatest command. That, that is what the Bible is teaching. That is what the Old Testament is culminating to, to say. And the response from this scribe was not lost on Jesus. Look at verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And after this fourth confrontation, Jesus' response closes the debate. Right? No more questions. No one wanted to get in, 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 into a, a debate with him again. Right? No one had the boldness or the courage to ask any more questions. He shut it, he shut it down. But his final words to the scribe, uh, serve both as a compliment and also as a warning. We can see it in, the, in this way. The, the, the compliment comes as he says, 
you're not far from the kingdom. That, that he understood something. Jesus says that, that he answered wisely. Now that word wisely is the same word that the scribe used when he said to Jesus, you're right. That word right and the word wisely are the same word in the original language. So Jesus says, you know, you know I said I was right. Well, actually, you're not far off here. What you have said is wise. You're not far from the kingdom. You see something. You're spiritually discerning. You're seeing something. You're seeing something that none of your peers are seeing. You're close. The man was on the right path. He understood that the most important part was not attempting to obey all the rules as so somehow to, to appease God. He was recognizing that there was something more. This love for God and love for man. This, this matter of the heart. Now there are many who think well of Jesus in, in the world today. And maybe some of you are here today. You're not maybe antagonistic to Jesus. Maybe you think that's fine. Jesus is fine. That's good. Bible's good. All good. You, you guys do you. Whatever. Right? I, I'm fine with that. And maybe you would even say, like, I, I think Jesus said some good things. Like, I, I'm a good guy. I, I think being good is good. Right? I, I, I think being nice to people, can't we all just get along? Right? Like, kindness matters. Like, maybe you're that person. And maybe in that condition, Jesus would say, hey, you're, you're actually on to something. <laughs> it is all about love, really. It's all about love for God and love for neighbor. You're not far from the kingdom. Maybe that's true. And maybe there's a measure of compliment, like you're on the way. But there's a backside of that, isn't it? Because being not far from the kingdom is not the same thing as being in the kingdom. For Jesus to look at that man and say, you're not far, means that there's still more work to be done. It means that he, he actually didn't get it all yet. You see, there, there are some people who are, who are good people who are on a, you know, a, a faith journey and they're asking good questions. They might seem spiritual. But unless that journey arrives at a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, they are not part of the kingdom. There is virtue in our society of asking questions. We like to ask questions. You know, uh, question authority, right? Don't, 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 take, don't take yes for an answer. Like, like, uh, don't, don't assume anything, right? Question, question. Like, a lot of people like to ask questions. And that seems as, as virtuous. But answers, conclusions, that is seemed as presumptuous, skeptical. How could you ever have certainty, right? It's all just to be questioned with no certainty. So Jesus is saying, you're on the right path, but unless and until you arrive, being on the path isn't good enough. Being close isn't close enough. There must be certainty, not in ourself, but in what God has said. One writer shares this illustration. Imagine a man or a woman standing at the entrance of an airplane. And with one step, they go on board and, and off they go to their destination. But unless they take the step, if they remain inactive, if they don't actually move, then they, they will not get on the plane. They will not leave to a new destination. They will stay where they're at. And so it is with our faith journey. Maybe we have been considered not far from the kingdom, but unless and until, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, unless you do that, you will not be saved. You will not be in the kingdom. You will not have hope in this life or the next. You see, just, just knowing about Jesus doesn't mean really anything eternally. Just being religious doesn't mean you're a disciple. Just going to church doesn't mean you're in the kingdom. Just reading your Bible doesn't mean you're converted. Just hearing the gospel doesn't mean you believe the gospel. Just being close does not mean you are close enough. And as we read this narrative, this story, Mark tells us nothing about this man's decision. We're left with, with him standing where he's standing. Not far from the kingdom, but there's no indication that he became part of the kingdom. Though he knew the truth, 
His response was deficient because it was without faith in Christ alone. And so we ask, what about you? What will you do with this, Jesus? If this is the greatest command, maybe you agree with that. Then what is the next step for you? Well, here's the reality. You and I can't actually fulfill that command. Hear Jesus say, the greatest command, love God and love neighbor. Here's the problem. You can't actually do that, can you? Because you're selfish, and I'm selfish. And when my neighbor needs help, I'd rather watch Netflix, right? Or, or, or loving God, well, it's, it's, it's uh, daylight savings time, and I don't, don't want to go to church, right? Or, or I'm forced with actually standing up for my faith, and, I, and I'd rather hide in a corner, right? What is it? What does it mean to actually do these things? And how could you ever do these things? Naturally, we do not love God or love others because our heart, the Bible tells us, apart from Christ, is desperately wicked. It wants for its own. It wants for its own glory, not God's glory. We we want to get ours. We want to get ahead in life. We don't care about anyone else. What we need is a change. What we need is a new heart. Here's the good news. The bad news is you can't fulfill these commandments. So you're never getting into the kingdom. The good news is that Jesus Christ actually came to give you a new heart, to fulfill the promise of that. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How does this change actually happen though? Say, that sounds good. I want to change. I want to have spiritual sight and love for God. How does that change come? Jesus says this in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom is beginning. So what? Repent and believe the gospel. How can you be part of the kingdom? How can you be part of what God is doing? How can you be part of the family of God? How can you know that that your home is in heaven? How can you know that your sins are forgiven, that you have eternal life, hope now and for the future? How can you know that? Repent and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the work of God through Jesus on the cross, paying for your sin and for mine, through his death, burial, and resurrection, offering to us life that we don't deserve through repentance and faith. Jesus came to demonstrate God's love for us by dying for us. In response, we love him and live for him. And how could we ever, John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. The only way you love people, the only way you love God, truly, the way that Jesus is talking about, is if you have been loved by God. Until you've been loved by God, you, you, you don't know what that love is. We're ignorant of it until we've been loved. And once we're loved by God, and that's what Jesus came to show us, that we love others. It's the same with grace. Until you've been shown grace, you won't extend grace. Until you know that you've been given grace and mercy, you won't give it to other people because you don't have it to give. You won't forgive until you're forgiven. You won't love until you're loved. And Jesus has come to show us the love of God. What God commands us to do, love him and love others, he will equip us for. In Christ, walking, through, walking in his spirit, we can love God. We can love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. And we can love our neighbor as ourself for his glory and for our good. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you take the step today to accept him, to recognize that that, that he is the way into the kingdom, not your good works, not your your deeds, not your, your rituals, Will you come to him? And if you have, will you walk in obedience this week to love him and to love your neighbor? Let's pray for God's help. Lord, would you help us? Truly, we are, we are not able on our own. And we know that. We confess that today. Left to ourselves, we can't do these things. And yet that is the very reason Christ has come. 
So praise, praise be Christ for coming. Thank you, God, for sending your son. Pray for those who are with us today. Maybe you've heard the gospel before, but have yet to come to faith. Maybe they're the ones standing outside the proverbial plane, waiting to step on, waiting to admit that they're a sinner and seek Christ for salvation. Pray that they would today. Pray that they would see Jesus as the Savior they need, his love shown for, for them through the cross, and that in response to the work of Jesus, they would believe in him. And for those who have, this is an old scripture for many. We've heard these words before. But may we reconsider what it looks like in our life today to love you with our whole being and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray that we would do it for the glory of God and the good of others. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. He saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. But by him at sight. A cause he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. For my he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, He will hold me fast. Race, the race with Him to endless life, He will hold me fast until my faith is turned to sight when he comes at last he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so he will hold me fast he So he will hold me fast. Amen. Our benediction this morning is based on Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And now as we go from here, 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all until the day of Christ's return. Amen and amen. Thank you for coming today.